My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Serbia, a people and a place with a long and storied history, stretching back to the Vinci culture up to the USSR and the Republic of Serbia. Today, we venture into this landlocked nation who's produced innovators and intelligencers, including the infamous Nikola Tesla, whom today's guest claims may have been a part of a hidden agenda to cover up the old world. Yogi Zorananda returns to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss his recent trip to Serbia, the land of his kin, and so much more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Yogi Zorananda. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me, is a familiar face here on this show, a friend of the show, someone who was on the podcast all the way in the teens, back when we were in our teens. Now we're sailing towards episode 300. This will be episode 294, maybe five, who knows for now. But either way, returning to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, Yogi Zorananda, Yogi. Welcome back, brother. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show again. I think this is probably like the third Uh, or fourth podcast we've done together. Yeah, including yours now. And yeah, it's wild to hear that you're approaching episode 300 and that, yeah, I've basically been around since, you know, some of the early episodes. So congratulations. And I'm stoked to have been a part of it this long so far. It's great. Thank you. Yeah, right on. No, for sure. For folks who are curious, maybe they got to the the party late. You can go on Patreon. Some of those older episodes are archived on the Patreon. You can hear Yogi's first appearance on this show, or you can hear my first appearance on his show. I went back and I watched that the other day. Just parts of it. I, I can't listen to myself talk for none of the reasons why the listeners might dislike my voice totally separate reasons <laughs> but i i don't know maybe you feel differently but i can't 
I can't listen to my own podcasts. It's just, I don't know what it is. But either way, I watched our show that we did on your podcast back when it was going by the first name, Ripe. And it was so funny to see where I was, what I looked like, and surely not even that long ago. Totally different location where I was recording. Totally different audio setup. And a lot's changed for the both of us in the meantime. Recently, you were down in Serbia. But before we before we get into your Serbia trip, because I want to learn about Serbia, I don't think it's an accident that Yogi Sorananda has some roots in Serbia because, you know, maybe, I don't know how you feel about this subject, but maybe genetically, ancestrally, you're connected to some of the practices that you have embraced as a part of your daily, weekly life, right? I mean, being a yogi, I, I don't even know your your original birth name, yogi. I just call you Yogi Zorananda. I don't know. Maybe your parents gave you that name. Maybe you told me your name way back when we first met, but I just always call you Yogi Zorananda. I think that name suits you, but it turns out you're, you know, ethnically, genetically speaking, you're Serbian, and there might be a, a connection between Serbia and India. This is something that you mentioned to me before we started recording here. And just to remind all the folks, Yogi has his own podcast. It's now called Yoga Connection with Zorananda. And you can listen to that wherever podcasts are found. Not a lot of new episodes recently, but those episodes are evergreen. He's got 34 episodes. They're all really, really great content, especially if you're interested in expanding your understanding of mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism from a Western perspective. So I'll, I'll shut up now. I thought I had the hiccups, but I think <laughs> I just talked them away. Nice. Yogi, how's everything going? I mean, it's been quite a trip. I think around the same time you first joined me on my podcast, you started your podcast. So we've been podcasting around the same amount of time. So how's everything been for you as a as a yogi slash podcaster slash musician slash all around, I would say yeah. I'm going to give you a compliment here. All around great guy. I didn't want, I don't want to well, say you. all around spectacular guy. I don't want to make it too cheesy. You're honestly all around a great guy. So tell, tell us, tell the folks what's been going on. Yeah, I haven't focused too much on my podcast. One, because my laptop that I was using quit out on me. And the like myriad of things that I do, the one main focus has been music. So I've been spending a lot of time in a studio with my producer. We are recording and just about finished an album right now, which is going to be my first like rock vocal album that I'm singing, playing guitar on. And, and then just in my daily life, of course, I'm a normal human being. So I have a job and I kind of balance everything with still maintaining my, my yoga practice and really viewing life in yoga as this synergistic thing where how I show up for my job, how I show up for my family and my friends, I am weaving the philosophies and the practice of yoga in as much as possible. And so with that life has been good. And of course there's challenges all along the way with, you know, past breakup to suddenly moving 
leading up to my trip to Serbia, right? Where, yeah, I really got to see firsthand what my family's life is like. But before getting into that, yes, my focus on music has been really, really amazing and really special to me, primarily because I'm, I have the honor and I have, I guess, the luck to have a good friend of mine who's just like a master musician and to have a mentorship like that where I can spend every week with someone not only recording and creating, but also honing in on a skill that I've been developing for 20 years. And so even though it's like this other extension, I like my roommate expressed to me the other day that I'm like an octopus, right? And I have all these limbs in and all these different things. And the the benefit that I have in the way that I operate is that I can have a good grasp on each thing. And my development is really holding on to bettering those skills. And so one limb of my octopus self in the sense is has been music. And so what, you know, and I, and I want to apologize if anyone's listening that did listen to my podcast as well and that I haven't been able to record and it's just simply because of, you know, focusing on what my, my priorities have been with, with life. And so now that I'm back from my trip, I'm moved into my new place. I'm all settled in, you know, my next goal in the next couple of weeks is to get a laptop so I can get rolling on recording because I really do miss it. And I'm now in a place to be able to share that with people and, get back into the topics that are really inspiring to me. A lot of the yogic philosophy. I know some of the latest videos that I had up were going through the koshas, the energetic layers. And so to be able to dive back into that and to pick topics, and even if it's just solo episodes, I don't, I don't mind that. But I think the, the challenging part for me in podcasting with everything that I do was also like the kind of managerial role of, being a booker, you know, and like finding people to interview, especially because my podcast is so niche. It's primarily on the topic of yoga, but how it branches into other aspects of, of people's lives. So there's, there's things for me to look up, look forward to, and also kind of being honest with myself in the pace of how things go. Cause I'm kind of weird that way that I, I don't really feel like doing something like having a podcast and really banking in the episodes is like too much of a, of a priority or too much of something that I need to like really obsess about. But I know there's something that I can learn in like people like you or Sam, where I'm like, you know, developing this really cool friendship with to be a little more motivated and a little more inspired and that's what I love about coming onto your show and having these conversations is that then it gets like new gears going in, in that direction. A lot of thoughts racing right now. Absolutely. I love having you on the show. You know, this is one thing that has developed like many other returning guests on the show. I feel like we've developed a rapport for folks who don't know. I have considerably helped out, you know, with with the podcast just through my advice and obviously 
we both use the same host. So I figure, you know, if I could help out a guy like you get into it, you know, it's net benefit for me having someone who I can turn to, especially considering your expertise in areas that have always interested me. But quite frankly, I just haven't had the, well, the time set aside to to really dive into it. And now with the podcast, I can sort of take these mini dives, you know, a couple hours at a time with someone like you, who, you know, as you say, like this octopus, you have your, you know, many arms in different arenas, doing different things, balancing, juggling. And like I said, your podcast is evergreen, brother. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel the need to apologize. I think you should just keep up posting at a pace that's comfortable for you because that's, I mean, what's most organic, right? I mean, I think ultimately when somebody finds your show, it's going to be because they're in the, they're in the zone to receive that information. It's just about sending out that synchronicity signal, which this show might help with, I think, if it hasn't already. So, so yeah, I mean, not just the gosha, the koshas, but you've also covered the chakras. I don't think you missed any, right? I think you covered every chakra. Yep, there's episodes on each one. Right, and and yeah. the koshas, there might be some more there to get into. There's only four episodes, but how many koshas are there? Is there only three koshas? Because you have an intro and then the, the three episodes. Is there other koshas that are that are waiting to be discussed? Yeah, there are two left for me to do. I believe the Vigyana Mayakosha and the Ananda Mayakosha. Wonderful. Now, like I said off the top, I mean, I know you as Yogi Zorananda, but fill us in on, you know, your, I guess, because when you travel, I think, tra like, I personally, I haven't left the United States. People might gasp at that and say, oh, my gosh, Mark, never left the United States. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, I'm going to get out of here one day. I'll, I'll make my way around the world at some point. But, you know, I think from the one, one thing I should say, one thing that's really grabbed my attention recently are these vlogs that people do traveling, particularly one, and they don't need a shout out for me. They have millions of subscribers, but one British guy who just kind of goes and I guess he kind of breaks a lot of the stereotypes or the reputations that certain countries have and like certain areas have by going and doing like vlogs and certain areas. And granted, it doesn't always work out for him. Sometimes he gets himself into some messy situations, but for the most part, it kind of broke a lot of the preconceived notions that I had about maybe certain countries or parts of the world, you know, maybe where I thought like, oh, a person like me wouldn't be you know, welcome or whatnot. And you know, really to the point of like getting really moved by this content because I'm like, oh, wow, there's so much amazing varied cultures to experience and, you know, millions of beautiful people behind each one who are, you know, essentially waiting to, to share it with people who are, you know, visitors. There are exceptions, you know, everyone's so welcoming, but as far as, you know, tourism goes, is Serbia like a big leap for you? Have you done a lot of international travel prior to this or or was this kind of stepping out of your 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 mode? I know I know you have gone to Southeast Asia. We talked about that. You know, we, you mm -hmm. went to do 
some trips down there and trained with a certain yoga master that we don't need to bring up again. <laughs> but but yeah, so outside of the, the Southeast Asia trip, have you been to Europe much? Have you done any traveling, you know, prior to this? This trip to Serbia is my first time to Europe. And prior to the pandemic, I essentially had traveled every year since I was 18. And so, you know, each year could have looked like, at least in the, in the first like four years from being 18 and upwards, I traveled a lot to the United States, particularly to New York and Massachusetts. I had some gamer friends out there that, that I went to visit and spend time with. And from there, that was, that's what just started my travel bug. And I've traveled around the United States quite a bit. And then 2012 was like my biggest trip to Thailand for the first time. And then after that, going to Envision at Costa in Costa Rica, then India for my 300 hour teacher training and back to Thailand again, India again, and, and then Brazil a couple times. And that's the extent of my travel so far, other than this year going to Serbia and Germany and Poland. So essentially you're used to being kind of like sticking out like a sore thumb. I mean, I don't know if you, you went much outside of like where tourists typically go, but that's one thing that I always find really amusing when watching these, you know, my only experience of the, the rest of the world is through these videos. And uh, yeah, it's funny to see how, how much attention this guy draws just for kind of, you know, not fitting in. And uh, Serbia, I imagine you'd probably blend in pretty well. How did that go? Yeah, Serbia was really great and really interesting. I think because of being Eastern Europe, being Eastern, being part of Eastern Europe, once being a communist country, having ties to like Russia and kind of like totalitarian governments is there is the stigma that it's going to be unsafe in some regard, but immediately being there and walking through the cities and seeing the people is it felt no different than if I went downtown in my city and was just walking around and people are doing their own thing. Mm. Uh, and it was actually like quite nice. And just like the parks that we went through in the city, everything was super clean and modern, but there's also the old world of, of Serbia. And it, when I went to Germany, when I went to Poland, it was the same thing. There's this blending between, you know, what was around for hundreds of years in the old style architecture to what's happening now. So you see parts of the city that like are looking a little run down because it's a part of that old world, mm. but then how they're bringing in the new world with all of like the new city engineering to allow for cars and, and then the new kind of like pedestrian pedways that go around the city and the parks. And so that was quite relieving for me to see that like all throughout my life being Serbian from my childhood, maybe not all my life, but especially my childhood and into my teens, just being mocked and, and ridiculed from coming from a country that everyone assumes is third world because back in the nineties, there 
was the wars between Bosnia and and Serbia. And so coming up to modern day, being able to go there and see that everything looks great and people are just living their lives and people are happy. And a part of that relief was meeting my family on my mom's side for the first time and seeing that everything, everyone's doing great. You know, everyone has good jobs. Everyone's has good accommodations for like housing and, and everything. So then, you know, that idea that I had in my mind when I was a kid that I came from this kind of like third world country and that everyone is poor and my family is super poor and everyone's struggling, um, you know, may have been, or it was a fact way back then, especially when a war is going on. But then all these years later, meeting my cousins and seeing that everything is good, everyone is healthy, got me to put that idea to rest almost immediately, right? And and so my trip wasn't really at all about sightseeing. I really didn't have too much of an interest in making my family like take me here and there to see these things. It was almost solely about family and particularly my parents because that I went with my mom and my dad and it was my dad's first time back in 50 years. And and it was my mom's first time back in like 20 years. And so wow. to share that experience with them and go through the emotions and having my mom see her brothers for the first time in 20 years, her sisters, and, you know, it just allowed me to witness a coming home that was, I feel so much more important for my parents and though, you know, I was there and I got to see my family, I know for myself, it's just now opened this door where it's that much easier for me to return. And there was something like so genetic about it too, like that my body itself has been all these other places except my home country. And so just the fact itself of like my body returning to what my homeland is definitely spurred something in me that has caused like an internal change that just feels so good. Mm. Were you born there? No, I was born here in Canada, but my parents are both from there. And like wow. my whole family lineage is, is from there. Right. It goes back like hundreds of years. Right. That's amazing. So, yeah. And, you know, for people who who may not have been paying attention in history class or, you know, just don't have a, an ear for this kind of stuff, Serbia has been through you know, quite a lot. It's in one of these areas of the world that just seems to, I guess, go through like the, you know, roundabout with different rulers and empires and governments. And I mean, it went from the kingdom of Serbia to the kingdom of Yugoslavia to socialist Yugoslavia through the USSR. And I mean, and then after the USSR broke up, now you have what? three or four separate in individual countries, and I'm sure there's hundreds of different ethnic groups in between. So these are, you know, complicated places with, you know, a variety of different people there. What, you know, given that you were there for family, did you feel 
you know, immersed in the culture? Is it a sort of welcoming kind of experience? Would you, would you live there if you had the opportunity? It was very welcoming. Like everyone in my family were just, yeah, thoroughly excited to see us. And uh, personally, I, I don't think I would want to. And, and I think it's more just a, a personal thing in where I feel at home, right? Where like, I've just been in Canada for so long being born and raised here and like living in the city that I have been born in for 35 years that there's an attachment that I have that I don't, I think would end up causing regrets than anything. And where the opportunity that I have to live the kind of lifestyle that I do here, I don't think at all I would have over there because even though they're kind of like newly democratic, there there's still a kind of communist touch to things and a kind of communist touch to how people make money and how much money people are making. Yeah. And to go from a society where my ability to get the things that I want to have a fruitful life, I think would be much more challenging there. Just kind of seeing how my family lives and like seeing how the infrastructure is. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, just, just kind of seeing how, how they build their houses and, and stuff like that, where it, it's odd to think and it's odd to sit for me to say, but there's just something about it. That's also chaotic. Like just like trying to navigate through the streets and and just how things are are created i think i've just i've just been in canada all my life for so long that going from a system that i'm so used to going to this whole other one <laughs> that's seemingly so much more chaotic would i think just and it sounds bad but it, it would just annoy me yeah there's one day where my dad and my mom and my uncle went to this historical site called Vincia. It's this little town on the e on the east of Belgrade. And there is an archaeological site where there was a dig that happened in the early 1900s where they found all these like thousands of year old settlements. And the, <laughs> the ride there was just so aggravating and so annoying trying to navigate through their street system. And again, I just, it sounds like petty, but it was like, it was fun to see. And it was like fun to kind of see how the layouts are. Like, for example, say if you were driving on like an interstate, right? Like I, whatever in Massachusetts and you take an exit, and typically when you're thinking of a highway, like a major highway that goes through a city, you take an exit and it goes to a main road. And then that main road kind of branches into the suburbs, whatever. There would be exits that go, they loop around and they go right into an alley, like literally an alley between just these like housing buildings. And it was just funny to see how the... Just like their infrastructure is yeah. is a little chaotic that way. 
Very interesting. Yeah, I I imagine it's definitely a change of pace. I mean, again, referencing these videos I've been watching maybe explains why this is so fascinating to me. And uh, I think, you know, we can all learn a little bit about other cultures. The, you know, the common thing you hear is, oh, well, people drive on the other side of the road. You look at some of these Asian countries and they have like, you know, million scooters. And I mean, it looks like nobody's even using stop signs or lights or anything. And they seem to be, you know, doing just fine, uh, going at a fine pace, navigating. Is it that chaotic or do you, is it more the infrastructure that's confusing and sort of kind of, you know, short side or maybe inefficient is a better phrase? Yeah, it's definitely a combination of both where, yeah, you, there's definitely a seeming. I mean, are there, are there livestock in the road and things like that? Is it that rural? No, not in the, not in the cities. I have, so my, my uncles, they're twins. They live in different towns and they both have like farms. And that's, that was the cool thing that I thought about the kind of smaller cities or the towns. In Serbian, it's called a selo. So selo is like the countryside. And there will be a town that is basically one, one or two streets, like two main streets. And then the houses are on like smaller perpendicular streets. And every house has three to four, no, maybe not that many, maybe like one to two acres of farmland where they have like cows and pigs and chickens. So it was neat to see the city and how their cities are operating. And then to go out into the country and see just how different it is than like where I am, because they're like these little tiny towns are all over the place and they all kind of connect to each other. And, and it was, it was nice to see that what is remaining in Serbia, even though in the cities, this whole like kind of democratization is happening, that when you go into the towns, that's where you see the traditional kind of like old Serbia way of living of these smaller towns that have just a couple streets and intersecting streets where the land is divided up into these small kind of farms mm. and yeah. And then in those, there's just cows walking around, roaming around. And but the sad thing about those towns is that it's mainly filled with older generations, like the younger generations, you know, in each town, you'd really only see a handful of some younger folk. And, and so maintaining those towns is going to the wayside you know like I'll, i spent some time just walking around and seeing a lot of abandoned buildings and a lot of abandoned farms and where the family still owns it but they just they don't want to do anything with it anymore if like you know it was their parents and their parents passed away and yeah and, and i think I, I i find that at just like being a serbian that there's this mentality that's just within us where like, I don't want to say the abandonment, but I want to say like, like a neglect and where maybe something a touch that, of nihilism. That, yeah. That something that can be revitalized. They're like, don't even bother. You know, it's like this whole mentality of like, whatever, like it, it doesn't matter anymore. Right. 
It does where... feel like that is a is a is not you know unique to Serbia. You know, from the videos I've been watching from certain Eastern European countries, that this gentleman goes around definitely feels like that's kind of the case with all of these you know former USSR areas right where people were kind of crushed by this like totalitarian government that just was like no you know you're all gonna work put your money in this big pool and we're gonna decide what to do with it I mean maybe it'll take a few more generations for that to kind of leave people's spirits you know because that definitely can defeat you know people over over generations right I mean I know from having grandparents, as a matter of fact, from Canada who emigrated here to the United States, just understanding how different the world was when they were kids, you know, to how it is now for us in, in this part of the States. I can only imagine, you know, the kind of conversations, you know, the older generations have with the young kids about what it was like under the USSR and I mean, Serbia in particular, it's like it went from, like I said earlier, all these different empires have kind of left their imprint on this area. One thing you notice, and we'll get into some of the old world stuff in a bit, is a lot of like Western Islamic architecture, a lot of big domes I'm seeing here, domed ceilings and uh, these big magnificent sort of wide set buildings. That's That's some pictures I'm seeing here for Belgrade. But yeah, I wonder if that's sort of endemic to com former communist countries. Yeah, I, I would imagine so, because I'm just even remembering some of the things my dad told me about when, when he was a teenager in Serbia and when it was Yugoslavia. And there was this push to take people out of the farmlands into the city and they incentivized it by saying you'll have your own apartment and you know we'll put you in this place there's a lot of work and you know like your food and and all this stuff is being taken care of and it was all fed on like kind of like misinformation that the communist government propaganda. were telling these people yeah there's this propaganda that they were telling them like oh yeah we have all this housing for you and everything and then when they when the people arrived in the cities and they gave up their land, there were food shortages. There were housing shortages. They like, they just took all the land. Like that's what it was about. It was like feeding them these lies so that they can take their land and do what they wanted to do with it. Mm. And sounds so a lot like I, these 15 minute cities that they're trying to implement. Exactly. Right. And so, When I think about, you know, my heritage and, and where, how my parents grew up and, and that in me, there's just this innate skill for gardening and growing, um, you know, kind of going back to the point of if I would go back to Serbia or if I had the opportunity to live in Serbia, I, I also wouldn't because I want to bring that to where I am here. And so you know, my trajectory right now in the next couple of years is to buy a property outside the city so I can start putting to practice what my parents did when they were young and so that I can continue that tradition in 
in a new place where I already know the system and how it's set up. And now act as a bridge for my family in Serbia, you know, cause we had, I got to talk to them and, you know, see what it would take to get them to come out here. And so that uh, we can be in each other's lives and just to show like really how actually easy it is. But uh, yeah, I, I think getting back to, you know, this kind of resentment and this bitterness that the Serbian people have because of the communist regime and, and the wars and, you know, seeing that their traditional upbringing is surrounded by trauma right cuz a lot like a lot of it in the serbian in like serbia's history was a lot of religious wars right wars between the catholics wars between the islamic wave that was coming through europe in medieval times and so their their faith in their orthodoxy has been has been challenged every step of the way and so, like, in my mind, the takeover of communism was a more successful one where taking people from the land into the cities and indoctrinating them in an industrial way of life was, like, a pretty big blow to that part of themselves. And the nice thing is seeing my family that there was still a veneration to their the religion and the orthodoxy and the the household saints and and that kind of stuff but it seems that like largely as as there's like modernization that's taking control and this like growth of technology that there's a dampening effect on tradition and and religious what was the, what's the how do I say it religiousosity or their like religious nature yeah well and and you know you make the point about you know them being taken the serbs being taken into the cities from the farmlands by the government of yugoslavia the same thing happened during ottoman rule unfortunately history repeats itself they were the janissaries at that time this elite you know, sort of Ottoman Empire's troops, right? The, the stormtroopers, if you will. And yeah, they went around Islamizing or Islamization, right? This is, I mean, the same thing Christians were doing, the Ottomans were doing, you know, Islamic people were doing this. And yeah, it looks like Serbians were taken, you know, forcibly into slavery, people all over the Balkans at this time period. And yeah, it's it's very interesting how, you know, the geography and culture and government and war, they all sort of blend into this cultural implant imprint, particularly with like landlocked countries in areas where, you know, bigger nations have interests in trade and things like that, right? And with Belgrade, the capital of Serbia right there on the Danube River. I mean, 
You know, we have history going all the way back to the tribe of Dan, someone who has been on this show before. <laughs> His name is Dan as well. People might be familiar with him from the Rising from the Ashes podcast. Shout out to Dan Donanaki. He he has uh, talked to me about this in the past and how there's this connection between the tribe of Dan and the Danube River and the Danes. And if you look at the Danube River, it's the second longest river in Europe. It goes pretty much perpendicularly through Europe into the Alps from the Black Sea. And yeah, Serbia is kind of smack dab in the middle of that. So I imagine that makes it a sort of melting pot or, you know, an area where a bunch of different cultures are going to, you know, have common ground, maybe a nexus point, if you will. Is that still kind of the way things are now? Is there a lot of different, you know, groups of people in, in the city or is it sort of a homogenous kind of group of Serbs? Yeah, I would say it's largely a homogenized group of Serbs. There it, there doesn't seem to be too much cultural diversity. Uh, I saw a little bit of it, which is like, it's interesting to see, you know, people who are like, just like African or from Asia somewhere, fully speaking Serbian. And, but for the most part, it's like your typical kind of Eastern European kind of look. Right. And yeah, the way that I just from what my dad has taught me over the years about Serbian history and from what I've looked up, Serbia in its placement was largely a defender for Europe. Because when you look at where where Turkey is and their way into Europe would either be all along the coast of going all along the coast of North Africa into Portugal and into Spain and then finally making your way up or going right into Europe through kind of bypassing Greece and going north of Greece into Europe or into Serbia. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, Serbia's role was defending that border. And so the, they kind of stunted the growth of like Persians and the Turks because of their ability to basically hold that guard. And it's interesting. There's an Islamic scholar named, I think his name's, what's his name now? Bill Werner. Just got to look this up too. So there's these excellent videos from this Islamic scholar from the United States. Okay. Who basically shows and through like a 45 minute video, he details the path that the Islamic conquest took to finally get into Europe. And it was a 1500 year process. And in this time he maps out and he shows like kind of battle by battle, how long it took till when you watch where he's mapping out, he's mapping out the trajectory west along North Africa into Portugal and Spain, east and through Europe by the 1600s, finally getting into, which is now Bosnia. 
And it's around that time between, so when the kind of like Serbian empire, if you just look up, you can even Google this, Sardushan, so like T-S-A-R-D-U-S-A-N, and the Sardushan map, you'll see the map of Serbia as an empire, and it basically takes up Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Montenegro, and Northern Greece. And so that was in the 13th century, so in like the 1200s. And so for the Islamic conquest take 1500 years essentially to like get to that point that it took them another 300 years to break through and actually get into Bosnia. And, and so it's interesting, like when you look at the placement of Serbia being in like the Northeast, Croatia being in the Northwest and then Bosnia being below Serbia and Croatia, that they're each kind of ruled by a different religious class where Croatians are Catholic Serbians are Orthodox Christian and Bosnia is, is Muslim largely. And so to me, that just shows that, you know, a lot of the kind of dividing of Serbia and its orthodoxy is religious in nature. And, you know, it, to me, it just, it just shows that the, simply just like the divide in human nature is based on these ideologies that are all the same thing, right? Like Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, they all are derived from the same religion. And yet the players behind it are all partaking in this game of, of conquest of land and property and, you know, what that does to millions of people over centuries and millennia is encoded in, in our genetics, right? Like there are tendencies that I even have just as being a Serbian body that with the help of my yoga practice has shed light on just conditions psychology, like psychologically that create limitations in you know, what I want for myself, what I want for my family, and even just withheld trauma from being a, a part of wars. Like, you know, my dad has told me stories of his family and where my lineage goes back to that my whole lineage is basically military and farming. And, and so when I look at my own tendencies and what I'm good at and, you know, what issues I have, I can see that my like veracity and my stubbornness and my intensity is totally coming from that part of the family that had dealt with war and, and just battles and then the nurturing part of myself that wants to feed people and grow and be a builder where that's like really coming from that like farming part of myself. And so it, it's really interesting 
taking the time to do that. And I know there are a lot of people out there that just have really, they have no idea about their history, right? And especially if you're like fourth or fifth or sixth generation Canadian or American, that it can be, it, it kind of turns into muddy waters, right? Where you might not even know, like you're Irish and English and German and Dutch or, you know, that you're just like a, a mixture of these things. But the thing that I realized is no matter what, there's at some point your lineage goes back to farmers and warriors, that it's in all of us, that you go f- far back enough that you can trace some part of your family that had large amounts of land or farmed or we're in the military or we're fighters of some sort. And so I think the disconnect that we have, especially now with all the technology that we have, social media and everything, the like seven second videos that are just fucking up our attention spans is that it's disconnecting us from our ancestry and it's disconnecting us from these abilities that we have that have taken thousands and thousands of years to develop, right? Of like just generations of of families and growth that regardless of our inability to have a full memory of it, there are things that are operating in us just genetically that we can have access to. And it comes from a choice that there's a deliberate desire to look into what our ancestry is. And, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about like, Oh, go to ancestry.com and blah, blah, blah. No, it's like, it's going to take asking questions of parents or relatives as you can. It's going to take going into libraries and, and really thinking outside the box of, you know, what's my family name? Like, so, kind of getting into now like who I am. So my given name is Zoran Glamochlia. And Oh, I knew that. Yeah. And so <laughs> Glamochlia essentially means a citizen of Glamuch. So Glamuch right now is a city in in Bosnia. And so my, that's my dad's side. So my dad's family derive from this town Glamuch. And this is like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, and so prior to that, there are people who came from Kraina. And so Kraina essentially, I think was land that was sectioned off by the Ottoman empire. And they said, those of you living in here, you live tax-free, right? You get land, you grow all the things that you want. It's all yours. But when there's war, you have to fight. And, and so that's where, you know, my dad's side of the family over hundreds of years comes from. And, uh, and so where the name Glamochlia came from is that the people who left Glamoch because of something, I'm not entirely sure, probably war, they're pushed out. 
And these are people in my family who settled in northern Croatia, which would have been Serbia at that time, that they took on Glamuch as a name because they were like, well, we need to, we need people to know like where we came from and who we are. And so there's a few different iterations of Glamuch. There's like Glamuchic, Glamuchlia, and I think Glamovich and another one as well. And so when I was a kid, I hated my name. You know, all my friends were Derek, Chris, Mike, Matt, Brad, you know, they were just all Canadian names, right? I was the only one with this like weird ass fucking name that Noah could pronounce. So I hated it. And I remember, I remember telling myself when I was in grade three, I was like seven years old or eight years old. And I told myself, I'm going to learn English so well that no one, unless they hear my name, no one will know I'm Serbian. And like, when I look back on that at first, I'm like, man, that's so fucked up. Like, how could I have done that to myself? Right. But that it was just a lesson for me. And that is what prepared me to have the appreciation that I have now for my family, for who I am. Cause I spent so long denying it, spent so long being bitter and resentful and just like, not so much hating, but having resentment towards my parents, especially my mom, because she doesn't speak English very well. And I looked at how my friends communicated with their parents and how I didn't have that, you know, like I would try to talk to my mom about things and like, she wouldn't really understand me because there's this language barrier because I was abandoning learning Serbian. And so to come to this point now where I, with the help of a yoga practice and with the help of introducing the spirituality in my own way, actually brought me back in touch with my own lineage and with my own kind of history and, and, and family. And to now be at a more mature point where relearning language has been a blessing and, and seeing, especially on this trip, right. Of like being with my mom, and my dad and being with my dad particularly and stepping off the plane and him being back in the country that he was from for the first time and going to this, to going to Vincia and going to this ancient archeological site that he has spent the last like six years talking to me about. And there we are together, like standing on this site, like looking at each other and like hugging each other. And that's where, like what I said at the beginning, like this like immediate change was happening to me genetically, just on this subatomic level of things clicking into place that I've been waiting all my life to do. That's beautiful. Yeah, sorry. I went on a little rant there. <laughs> oh, that was a beautiful rant. I mean, beautiful to share that with us here, man. Especially a show named My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. To, to have that feeling when you're a kid. I mean, given your name, I mean, if you grew up in my neighborhood, we probably would have called you Z. 
we pro- probably would have thought your name sounded like Tarzan or something. Probably gave you a cool nickname. So or maybe your friends just weren't that creative. I don't know. Maybe you did have a nickname that you're not sharing with us. If there's reason for that, I understand. I had a few crazy nicknames when I was a kid myself. So, but that's beautiful, man. I mean, personally, I do feel a connection to my name. I know the story of my name. It is kind of a unique name. Everybody with this last name that I have, Steve's spelled the way it's spelled, is related through this original family that came, you know, from Germany in the 1800s, maybe, no, 1700s, a long time ago. And uh, yeah, it's just really beautiful to hear how you found your way back there and and how you've kind of ascended some of the obstacles that were in your way. Because yeah, it's definitely difficult to have people in your family who, you know, speak a different language from you. You know, my grandparents spoke French and English. They didn't speak English that well. They couldn't understand everything that I tried to explain to them. Their, you know, culture, different cultural differences here and there being, you know, French Canadian growing up in a sort of rural area north of Maine. And uh, yeah, I definitely had that kind of blessing that they did speak English and I was able to connect with them. Obviously my parents grew up in the States, so there wasn't really much of a, uh, there wasn't much of a language barrier there. Unfortunately, I might've liked to have a, a language barrier at some points in my teenage years, but, but yeah, there, there's definitely something I would say alluring and defining in what you're saying, you know, cause it's, it's a, it's inspiring, I'm sure, for people listening who, as you kind of explained, you know, knowing people around you in Canada, I can say the same for a lot of my friends in America, where they don't really put a lot of emphasis on, you know, connecting with their roots, connecting with their ancestors. You know, there are exceptions, but I think for the most part, it's not something that people really make a big deal about, particularly people who's who've been here for maybe six, seven, eight generations, you know, at that point they're, they're American through and through, but we all, if we're, you know, not indigenous came here somehow, there's some story and uh, yeah, the ancient, the ancient history of Serbia is fascinating. I mean, the place that you just brought up that your name carries with, I think that's beautiful that your name is also the location that your family hails from. My name is like, the story is a, is kind of a joke because when they're on their way from Philadelphia to, to, I think they went to somewhere in New Brunswick, Canada on the Northern side of the river early into Canadian history. And on their way up there, there was a son born on the boat and his birth certificate was Americanized or anglicized and spelled differently than it originally was. So originally the last name was Steve, like Stein, but with an F and, and now it's Steve's. So yeah, sort of, I, I guess my lineage goes back to like German, I, I think they must've been Protestant, some denomination of Protestant. So yeah, and then, you know, they settled in Canada and, you know, that's my father's side of the family. And then somewhere along the way, 
you know, there's all, you know, there's the maternal element, of course. So there's, that's where, especially in a place like America, you get the whole mutt situation going on. But with my mother's side of the family, they're directly from Canada and, and they're French by lineage. So I'm sure there's some story I can dig into if I ask my aunt and find out what part of France they're from and, you know, on and on and on. But I, as far as I know, their last name is a pretty common French last name. So that might be difficult, but either way, fascinating stuff. Now we mentioned earlier, old world and things like this. People are excited about this topic, of course. Now, as far as I know, Serbia, Yugoslavia, doesn't this area didn't fall under the realm of Tartaria, but a lot of people, you know, anything that was formerly USSR has that, you know, maybe reputation since the Tartaria craze kind of kicked off. I think on a more serious note or less speculative note, still interesting, but less speculative note, you, you mentioned the Vinca culture or the Vincha culture, which is Kind of interesting given the main image, and maybe there are more mundane sculptures and statues, but there's one statue that stands out to me amongst the some of the artifacts they have from this group of people. Uh, and it's, it's just a strange head. It almost looks like some of the things we see in Egypt, you know, some of the strange anthropomorphic animals and different interpretations, maybe even people with elongated skulls. I mean, this skull or this person's head uh, that's depicted in this sculpture I see here, it almost looks like football shaped or almost kind of like a flattened football. But I mean, who knows? It is, it is early sculpture art, but is there any, you know, anything interesting there that you've picked up on? Is there anything particularly exotic or maybe intriguing about this ancient culture that once was in the, the domain of Serbia? So the museum that they have in Vincia, where I went, it was pretty simple. And their focus largely, from what it seemed, was on their building technique and kind of the sophistication around how they were building at that time and more notably the first iteration of metallurgy and that's you know what we think of as the kind of like historical sense of where metallurgy came from was i think in like iraq and iran but this predates even that and so there is even a change recently that this Vinci civilization that was, or this, you know, yeah, Vinci civilization that was found that they were crafting weapons of some sort. They had some kind of metallurgy that was going on. And yeah, I'm just looking at these like figures that you're talking about too. And yeah, I think what I, what was kind of showcased the most from that museum was the just the housing and the building and how that they were using some form of concrete and that they were in the floor of the house. The foundation was this like slab of concrete with maybe like one foot tall, like kind of footer around the perimeter. And then in the floor itself, 
they had a kind of like oven that was built right into the floor, which would create a kind of like radiant heating when it was used. And so for something that's like 9,000 years old or something, you know, probably to the degree of like nine to 6,000 years old is, is pretty significant. And honestly, like that's as much as, as I know at that point, I think, you know, we kind of mentioned as well, this connection between India and Serbia, but yeah, the, this whole civilization is fascinating or what I found fascinating was they also traded in like different types of crystals. Like what's the black, why am I? Black tourmaline? Obsidian? No, it's obsidian. Yeah. So they had like a lot of obsidian and other kind of like minerals and salt. And so, you know, without actually having like a, you know, like a book in front of us or some kind of resource. It's hard to get any particular information, but even just looking at this like figurine and like the faces of, of these carvings, you know, kind of gets my mind going towards like Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and Mm. their whole idea that, you know, at the end of a great, catastrophe, you know, 12,000 years ago, that there was this um, ancient advanced human civilization that was going around to different hunter-gatherer tribes and teaching them architecture and agriculture and, and things like this and sculpting. And so in my mind, like these kind of figures to me show the remnants or their way of depicting who these ancient humans are because like if if you're a society where you know what everyone looks like why would you sculpt these weird looking people because that's not how the people look like Mm. right right (laughs) so well you know yeah it is yeah it is interesting there's another figurine that has two heads which you know who knows somebody could have been born with a a deformity, I'm sure, back then. Not that that's mm. particularly funny, but, you know, Siamese twins are a thing. But I, sh- I should say I spoke too soon when I said the thing about Tartaria, and I've been, I've been really skeptical about Tartaria, and maybe I need to ease up, and maybe this is a sign, because when I'm looking, and given this is Wikipedia, folks, Vincha, the Vincha culture su- section on Wikipedia in one of the side panels, there is a image, and it, in the caption it says, Drawing of one of the Tartaria tablets dated to 5,500 to 5,300 BC and associated with the Vincha culture. The Vincha symbols on it predate the Proto-Sumerian pictographic script. Now, people who might be excited about that it is named the tartaria tablet because it was found in vincha site in a village named tartaria not in serbia but in romania so i mean the vinchas this is at a time before those borders were even conceived of i'm sure so they're probably much 
different borders back then. But yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting discovery. Although you know, Wikipedia fashion, when you go to Tartaria Tablet's own Wikipedia page, they do have a section where they say the authenticity is disputed. But you know, this is Wikipedia, so we'll take that with a grain of salt. Some people think it was connected to the Danubian culture, surely along the Danube River there. Others think that there's some Sumerian links. And what's funny is when you look at the closest city from Tartaria, it, it you get the classic Starfort city image. I know this is maybe not your topic of expertise, so please bear with me on this digression here, Yogi. But yeah, when it comes to this culture and some of the artifacts, I mean, maybe, maybe because of, you know, let's just speculate with the Tartarian theorists here. Maybe this is something that the Tartarians themselves, given they were kind of an advanced society not too long ago, maybe they did some of their own excavations and had this somewhere. And that's why it was found in Tartaria, Romania. Yeah, I don't know. This is kind of fascinating. Again, you know, here I here I go again being skeptical about something only to be proven proven wrong. That's why we got to keep an open mind around here. Was this on display at the Vincia Museum? I imagine not, given this is something that was found in Romania. Did you hear anything like that Tartaria related at all while you're in Serbia? I didn't hear anything, but my good friend Chris and I went down the Tartarian rabbit hole few years ago and so you know one of our kind of like greater educators is john levy or john levi he's he has great videos about all of the you know cities around america and and everything about that but yeah i getting into all the tartaria stuff that i've gone into i came to a kind of conclusion on my own that Serbia was definitely a part of it to some degree. I even went as far as considering Nikola Tesla kind of like double agent that he was actually like a knowingly a part of a, like a kind of like underground or hidden Tatarian society. And that given his own education and his history, that his dad uh, I think it was a bishop in not Serbia, but I think Bosnia or Croatia and that he spent two years in the Vatican and there's, uh, there's nothing on what he actually learned in the Vatican. So my suspicion is that he was educated about all the free energy stuff when he was in the Vatican and that he came to America kind of as an agent, as someone being depicted as a great inventor of all this stuff, but it wasn't that he was actually inventing all that stuff is that he was in, educated on this old world technology and how to actually readapt it into a kind of like modern way and how, you know, like Thomas Jefferson or yeah, Thomas Jefferson, or was it? Yeah. Thomas Jefferson was the other inventor. Correct. Oh, Benjamin ben, Franklin. You're, ben Franklin. You're, yes. you're, ben. Forgive him, folks. He's a Canuck. He wasn't, you know, schooled on this. <laughs> I was going to say Benjamin Franklin after that. But yes, Benjamin who, Franklin. Who was um, the first president of Canada, by the way, or the first prime minister of Canada, by the way? Teach me something. 
I believe that was Johnny McDonald's. Johnny Mc, good old Johnny McDonald. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a real Canadian name. Okay, so sorry yeah. to cut you off, but geez, no, wow, Nikola yeah. Tesla, a Tartarian double agent. Now, this, I mean, this is something that checks out, and not that I've you know looked into this particularly, but you know, given given his like kind of infamy. And now he's kind of propped up as this like unsung, you know, genius of his time, not appreciated until, you know, decades after his passing. I mean, not that we can say that about Ben Frank. I mean, yes, he's definitely appreciated now, but I think he was very much appreciated during his lifetime as well. Although he had a sort of secret side, being a member of the Hellfire Club, being someone who had definite kinks and even some possible criminal aspects to his personality. A recent discovery of, I don't know if it's dozens or hundreds of skeletons underneath one of the places he was known to frequent over across the pond. So, uh, so yeah, you know, Ben Frank, Nikola Tesla, if there's a sort of similarity there, I wouldn't be surprised. They definitely both sort of claimed the Promethean archetype, right? Which is, you know, powerful in our time. Some people think that the Statue of Liberty itself is a sort of Promethean archetype to it, you know, or sort of designed with that in mind. Now, co coming from the City of Lights, no less in, in Paris, but... Nikola Tesla, he's sort of, he's got even like a, a sort of fairy tale, typical to a lot of these figures, about his life, right? His mother was born, or he was born, you know, I don't know if it was in some sort of, you know, it was probably in their home back in those days, but it was during a lightning storm, and they took that as an omen that he was some sort of a special child. I don't know if there's any local superstitions around someone being born on a thunderstorm. I think that there must be some sort of connection in cultures. I know there's a lot of talk, especially among people who are expecting about that sort of thing, right? So, or women that are expecting, I should say. But yeah, Nikola Tesla. Did I cut you off? I, I don't want to... I don't want to just say, hey, tell me more about Nikola Tesla, but I feel like you had more to say about Nikola Tesla. Yeah, just kind of still on that line of, of Tataria and this idea that kind of parallel to this, the societies or like the structure of the cities and the structure of the world that is taking place that in everything that I looked into with say, for example, like San Francisco, right. That like, there's this photo from the, I think it's like 1836 of a, a ma massive city that is empty, completely empty. Like this, there's a huge photo of like this panoramic view of the city from 1836 or something or 1830. And it's completely empty and it could easily house like, you know, millions of people. And that's where my mind has gone in, in kind of considering what's happened in, in the history of humanity, especially over the last like thousand years, potentially, is that something indeed is, is being 
covered up in a degree. And, and I really think it comes down to the Freemasons and because Freemasons is this topic that I've been kind of researching and, and getting into the last like 10 years, ever since, you know, I first found the internet and found kind of like obscure websites with all these kind of ideas is that I really just broke it down to the word itself, just literally free Mason. So like Mason as, or masonry as just like building and building material that you're obtaining free building material. And so when I look at even the city that I was born in, Edmonton, Alberta, Edmonton was founded by five 32-degree 30, Freemasons. And Edmonton has these very old pictures of these like monolithic buildings that are just massive. And yeah, so like Mark, even if you Google CIBC Bank, Edmonton, like 1900s here, I'll, I'll do it with you so I can get you to find this photo because there's a particular image of the bank showing it's, it's like pillars in the front of it. And there's this person that's like driving by on their bike and just the footer of the pillar is like 15 feet tall. And then the pillar itself is like hmm. four stories high. Does it have the words yeah. Imperial Bank of Canada over the top of the pillars? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I see it right now. Wow, I don't see the bicycle in front, but, they, you know, a different picture, but still I can see some people in front. And, yeah, this is definitely, you know, this is colossal stuff. Given, oh, yeah, okay. I will say, um, you know, just go ahead. Just Google this for a second. Imperial Bank of Canada, Edmonton, 1900s. Uh -huh. And it should be like the first and second picture and so my friend chris and i like we found all these images like this old this bank apparently the like clock tower behind it across the street from it this like library and a hotel and like all there were only these buildings in downtown edmonton at this time and and so looking at what John Levi has been showing on his channel and uh, there's another fellow from the UK, I think. I don't know if you found that picture. I'm using DuckDuckGo, so we might be using different search engines, but either uh, way, yeah. I found a good image and, you know, you sent yeah. me that in the Telegram and I'm going to make sure the listeners can see the image. There'll be a link in the description or it will be in the artwork for this episode. So yeah. maybe you already saw it. And so, and so after kind of getting into all this and seeing like there are Freemasons in every city. Okay. I was in Manaus, Brazil, and there's like Freemason lodges and like Manaus, Brazil is like in the middle of the freaking jungle <laughs> in, in the Amazon, right. In the Northern Brazil. How do we and spell so, that? What is that? Manaus? Yeah, M-A-N-A-U-S. So you're in the Amazon jungle and they had, what do they call that, Freemasonios down there? How do they say that in, in Spanish? Well, in Brazil, <laughs> it'd be know. Portuguese, huh? So Yeah, it'd be Portuguese, yeah. And just like, and Manaus is a huge city, you know, it's like millions of people. And, but just like walking down the street and seeing a Freemason lodge, you know? And, and so where my mind has gone in this is that, that there was this, just as we had the Dutch East Trading Company and the East India Trading Company, and that there are these corporations that were 
monopolizing trade around the world that I do believe that Tataria wasn't actually like a country or an empire, that it was this like trade corporation, just similar to the Dutch East Trading Company, and that they were running parallel with each other. And that this like old world architecture isn't coming from, and this is obviously my own speculation, but the, that it's not coming from the like Dutch East Trading Company side, that they are the ones that are like coming in and taking over this stuff. Because like between the two groups, you have the Tatarian group that are integrative and they go all around the world and they're building these like beautiful buildings and they're integrating with the indigenous while you have this other group that is going in and destroying and using free masonry to take what they've destroyed and to rebuild their own and to enslave the people that they that they find like the indigenous or whoever right and so like that's where my mind has gone on this that there's just been this kind of like secret war going on between two different factions of a kind of people that want to help and want to be integrative and want to be, you know, benevolent while you have this other group that is like malevolent and they want to conquer and they want to destroy. And where like what is fundamental in the Freemasons where I think is that their secret is that they go in and they re-engineer these cities that have already been there. And like, that's the secret that they hold, but I don't know. Like I, I would have to try to corroborate that somehow with the Freemason, but good luck. Right. (laughs) Speculation's fine here. I mean, we're already at Tartaria. So I I'm with you. I mean, it makes sense with what I've even seen here in my own state. There's a story about an ancient giant who stomped his foot in the Connecticut River and rerouted it. And when you go and look at what the geologists say, they say, yeah, the river used to go this way through this air, this path, you know, straight down the 72nd line of longitude. But now it strays from that towards the east and goes down more towards the mouth of Long Island Sound. And at the spot where the the river was sort of, I guess, changed the course was changed there is a deposit of portland brownstone and if you've heard maybe you've heard the song what is it what is the band is it it's it's not either way guns and roses it's definitely guns and roses they have a song mr brownstone right that's you know new york slang or whatever but all of new york was built with this portland brownstone and they found brownstone in other places but there's a couple of different deposits of different stones and the natives have their own stone structures and they even have lore like i mentioned you know about these stone giants some of them became mountains and some of them did stuff like this but in that exact spot you know they took all this brownstone out of there and even though the the language it gives it away you know you have a really good point there i mean think about how the word quarry is also used, right? People can fetch a quarry, right? People go out to get their quarry. It's kind of like a synonym for, you know, hard day's work or, you know, prize or, you know, whatever your your goal is or whatever you're trying to attain. 
That seems to be what these Freemasonios are doing. I, I think that's perfect. Maybe that's what's been happening all along. There's this sort of, you know, underground battle between these two factions. So, you know, maybe there's there's just sort of human error to blame. Maybe they think they're doing the right thing, you know? I mean, the far worse things have been done in the name of religion that haven't been written out of history. So, you know... I wouldn't totally, you know, stand by all of these speculations, but that's why we're here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to speculate. We've had Freemasons on the show in the past. We may have Freemasons on the show again in the future. You know, it's all about being open-minded here, but I definitely think that they are maybe not the modern iteration of Freemason, your local Freemason, but I think historically, yeah, they've played a, a role that has definitely been overlooked, to say the least. But when it comes to Serbia, going back over there for a moment, you mentioned the connection inherently between these cultures and, you know, there's just sort of Indo-European, so I don't know if it's like a what they call it, like a hapto group or something like that, you know, sociology or anthropology has a name for it. But many of the world's, you know, prominent cultures in this region from India west towards all the way to, to Portugal and then north into the Scandinavia and up through Russia, this whole area has been, you know, sort of grouped under this Indo European culture and it's gone and I guess influenced the entire rest of the world in many ways but but things like yoga may exist cryptically behind you know many many years of history like you know esoteric Christianity talks about the chakras and they they of course use different terms different language but it's essentially the same idea so have you seen any parallels? Are there any, you know, Christians in Serbia who do things that may resemble some of the practices you've learned through your dedication to yoga? The main similarity that I've seen is the use of household saints. So in India, there's this saying, there's a God for every person. And there's like, you know, a billion people, right? And and so when you when you go into India and you go into someone's house, each house is going to venerate their own group of deities, right? If it's Lakshmi, if it's Prakriti, if it's Shiva, if it's Krishna, if it's Brahma, you name it, right? And they have like a set of highly venerated ones. So like some of the ones that I said, right, especially Lakshmi, who is the goddess of of wealth and abundance, and then Shiva and Brahma and Vishnu, who are like the triad of, of the universe, the creator, maintainer, and destroyer, where similarly in Serbia, we too have a set of venerated, like, in this case, they're not so much deities, they're, they're saints. So it's Sveti Sava. So Sveti just means saint. So Sveti Sava, Sveti Nikola, Sveti Petka, and so on. And there's like a whole bunch. And so in my family, 
We venerate those three, Sveti Nikola, Sveti Sava, and Sveti Petka. And Sveti Petka is a, a lady who is a saint. Sveti Nikola is Saint Nicholas. And Sveti Sava is a newer saint, but a, a prominent one in Serbia because he was the uncle, I do believe, of Sardushan. So Sardushan is the one that created the the Dushan Codex, I think. There's like this codex of like morality that he created for his empire and like why his particular Serbian empire flourished because he had these like sets of governing morals and ethics, which really aligns with the morals of eth- and ethics of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and particularly Ashtanga Yoga, where Minus the whole like asana breathing techniques part, but the yamas and niyamas, like the do's and don'ts of how you want to conduct yourself is that there's really a similarity in that. And talking with my dad, what I've kind of pointed it down to is like, there's this one individual named Nino Belov who did a like a kind of conquest, but it is more of an exploration of down into the Indus Valley, into India. And that this is prior to Alexander the Great, even. And that there's this one historian who is this Indian lady, I think, forgetting her name, but there's this Indian scholar who found a linguistic link between the Cyrillic Serbian language and Sanskrit. And that they found that there are certain Sanskrit words that when you flip upside down are directly Serbian words. And so where my mind has gone is that someone like Nino Belov, who went down to the Indus Valley, went down into India, is that there were similarities found in their language And that even to the point where like, yeah, you can flip Sanskrit and you can find Cyrillic words is that maybe that was done on purpose. And that between Serbian, especially Cyrillic and, and Sanskrit is that there's this trade language that's there and that there's this commonality between, especially Northern Indians in the Himalayas and it's funny and, as and it, it passes from one hand to the other, you know, one person's reading it one way, the other person's reading it the other way, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. could have happened even organically or, or, or intentionally. I mean, we've had guests on the show recently, Ross Ben, tell us about this whole trading network of, of Africans who, you know, basically, I think maybe we could give them credit for inventing sign language. I don't know if there's an older group that has claim for that, but but it, they were silent traders. They established a form of communication that didn't require language, you know? So there's all these different, you know, anecdotes that we can garner, you know, glimpses into the past, you know, like little pieces of stained glass, you hold them up to the light, you see, it reveals this whole nother thing. But wow, 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 this is, again, cutting you off here because this is so fascinating, but keep going. Yeah. And so the, where this becomes personal for me is my parents, for whatever reason, uh, out of my uh, three other siblings, and I even asked my dad this, my parents taught me how to dream and how to analyze my dreams. 
And, and, and I remember asking my dad just recently, like, did you do that with, you know, sister, his brother? And he's like, no, not really. And so the way that my parents dream isn't like, oh, I had this cool dream and maybe it means this, like, my mom had this dream that uh, like a saint that she venerates with all her heart came to her in her dream, like just show, like showed up in her bedroom and was like, don't worry in two years, everything will be fine. My mom wakes up and she's like, okay, takes note of that. And two years later, they moved into a new house and like every problem that they were facing, like right before that, just like melted away and their life became like way greater. And so where, where I went with this is that there's a tradition, I think in, in the orthodoxy of Serbian religion that is deeply spiritual and it's, it's not written down it's largely conveyed verbally. It's largely a tradition maintained by telling stories. And in my family, in this case, it's through dream remembrance and dream analyzation and becoming very lucid in your dreams and controlling your dreams. Like my dad dreams every night and he like tells me every day about these wild dreams that he has. And so the connection that I was, I was making is that could it be that my innate desire out of my whole family, like no one's a yogi in my family, it, it in a conscious sense, like myself, that there is something that my parents intuitively were seeding and preparing me for by getting me to look at my dreams and to analyze my dreams and to see that there's more to life, that there's like a mystery at play. And why they didn't tell my, like, why did they weren't really like this with my siblings, but with me, right? And, and like, there's even a tradition in Judaism of, of doing the same thing that, like, there's one child out of the, out of all of them that, like, the father knows it can be taught, like, deeper truths about the practice, right? So there's something about, like, a, a deeper connection with spirituality that, intuitively there's someone that's picked in the family to kind of carry this torch and and it was me in this case and it carried me into yoga and seeing that for me personally to really get into the depths and the understanding of like the mystery of being a human and the mystery of of this place we call the earth that I had to introduce something new into my family's kind of tradition of spiritualization. And that's where yoga came in. And so, and then everything that I've been finding about like, and it was my dad that told me about this connection between the language of Sanskrit and, and Serbian. And, and so for me to then look into like, well, likewise, between the two countries, we have our own household saints that we venerate. So does India. We have these like morals and ethics that we are guided by similar to Ashtanga yoga and the eight limb path. And so it's like, it's starting to make sense that where I go 
a step beyond this is that it's not just about, you know, particularly with my family or with my country or with India or anything. It's actually a programming that this body has. And so I got to interview my teacher, Yoga Rishi Vishwaketu, and I asked him, when, you know, when did yoga start for you? And his answer is, oh, yoga never started. He's like, this body came with yoga. It just already had it. And, and so that like really clicked something in me. And I was like, oh, could it be that likewise, this body of mine already had yoga and that my parents were intuitive to this without really needing to get into any cognitive sense of it. They intuited it. And their tradition of spiritual practice is what helped seeded and started to actually like grow the yoga that's already in this body. Because I can remember when I was a kid and I would do headstands and full wheels and shoulder stands. And I would do all these yoga poses without really even knowing it. And even doing particular breathing techniques. I remember when I was a kid and if I was awake and I couldn't really quite fall asleep, I would lay on my stomach and breathe as deep as I can into my lungs, fill my lungs completely, and then exhale and just completely relax and feel myself melt into my bed. And I would just do that over and over and over. And I remember there's this one time where I started to have a dialogue in my mind. So I'm doing this breathing and I'm just relaxing through my body. And I'm maybe eight years old or nine years old at this time. And this dialogue starts coming up and I just start talking to myself in my mind and I'm talking and talking and talking and talking to the point where I'm not speaking it, but the voice is going and I'm just watching and I'm just observing this dialogue go and I'm seeing myself drift away from it, but it's also getting really loud and I'm getting bigger and I remember feeling my back touch the ceiling. And then I, I came back down to my body and then I passed out. And so I think that's what's important about getting in touch with our traditions because it could be the catapult into this like new idea of spirituality for you and how your connection to your body and to this earth and to this realm is really going to flourish by understanding your ancestry and how their practices are the, the starting point of it and where it's going to lead you from that point forward. Because I looked into everything. I got into Buddhism, you know, I looked into Christianity and like nothing really, really did it. And it was really particularly yoga that was like, yep, this is the one for me. And, and just seeing synergistically how it works with my family and my own upbringing. And so it's been, it's been really, really fascinating. And, and so I really think that like my parents come from this long lineage of like spiritual, like kind of like hidden spiritual torchbearers. And they're doing it through the way that you analyze dreams the way that you're sensitive to certain phenomenal experiences. Like, man, like my mom has crazy stories of like being at work. She was a, like a housemaid at a hotel 
And this was right after my grandma died. So her mom and where she was just working in a hotel and she hears her name and she looks over and she sees her mom sitting in the chair. And my mom's like, she just starts crying and she's like, Oh, oh, like, how did you get here? And you know, her mom's just like, you know what? Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Just everything's okay. And then she just like kind of looks away for a second and then she's gone. And so my pursuit for understanding phenomenal experiences is really based on like, you know, these experiences that I, my parents have shared with me and that it's not just hallucinations, that there's something of a kind of an ability that's there that is on the onset of something seemingly drastic that happens in your life that really fundamentally changes the way that your brain operates, the way that your heart and your body operates. And from that moment forward, you're just so much more sensitive to having these kind of phenomenal experiences. And it, it, it really isn't just like a normalized part of your life. And yeah, so the, the thing that I kind of want to plug here is, is the book that I've written a couple of years ago. And really that this book is like a, a course on understanding those phenomenal experiences that we all have them. And it's whether or not we've spent the time to really develop and hone in on first identifying it. And that when something weird happens or a synchronicity or a coincidence or whatever you want to call it, that there's something within your consciousness and there's something within your immediate reality that's telling you that there's so much more to the mystery of what it means to be a human and that the evolution of consciousness is largely an orchestration with and almost like a symphony of pushing you towards having these mysterious experiences so you can start to question the fabric of reality itself so you can see how much more malleable it is and that even though things remain concrete to some degree where things remain solid is that the the play between this world of physicality and this like hidden non-physical world is that there's a blending between them and how you want to be able to blend into an experience where you have an enlightened blissful moment is really being stretching your imagination and stretching your beliefs so that you can see that even though you're going to have regularly a mundane life that it is psychedelic and it is phenomenal and it is amazing. And the more you can see that life is amazing, the more opportunity you're going to have to have phenomenal experiences where you're going to spontaneously heal things. You're going to spontaneously go into a meditative state and see something that is like really like far out, like in my mom's case. Right. And that's like, that's happened to her multiple times. Like she has many, many stories of like, dead loved ones coming to her like visually like that or in dreams. And that's where I think like this is the sad thing about a lot of people in our world is like their complete disconnect to their parents. Like 
there may be even someone listening now that is like, man, I fucking hate my dad. Right. Or I don't even know my dad or I don't even know my mom or I, she's a bitch. Right. And it's like, I used to be like that, like up until my twenties, man, like I had this like deep resentment to my mom and it wasn't until, and I may have told the story earlier in another podcast, but until I had this like really profound heart opening experience in a Kundalini class with my yoga teacher, where I went back, traveled through time in my mind, like this whole meditative experience that I had in this like Kundalini class is I went back through all the times I was hurtful to my mom. And it was like flash instances all the way back until I was a kid, all the way back until I was a fetus, like a little baby in her womb. And having this visceral experience of being a little baby in my mom's womb and just hearing her heartbeat and my teacher's voice coming in and saying, that's the language of the heart and just like bawling and realizing that even though I was like so rude to my mom that like she just loved me so unconditionally and she taught me that love with her own heart while I was inside of her. And that is an experience we all have. Every single one of us, whether you don't know your mom or whether you hate her or you have resentment towards her, every single human being spent nine months, give or take, hearing a heartbeat all day, nonstop. And so that heartbeat is the first language is the first sound that we hear and what is part of our development. And so when we can tune back into that and we can see that we all share that experience, that we can look back and we can look to our parents and we can look to our mother and we can say, you taught me the greatest thing that I forgot, right? We all forget it. We come out of the womb and it's, we're in the illusion of separation. And, and so what my kind of path has been from that and what my, my goal is, is to teach people to go back into their hearts. And, you know, I share this in my book and in the first six chapters of step-by-step of how to do it. And to then deeply forgive and to see that from this point forward reconnecting with your with your especially with your mother and forgiving letting go of the resentment letting go of the hatred letting go of needing to change anything about her at all because that was my big thing when I got into all the conspiracy theory stuff I was hell bent on convincing my family that like everything about the Freemasons, everything about the banking systems, about the government, about UFOs and all this stuff. And, and then trying to, especially with my mom, like trying to get her to change who she is after that experience. When I came back, I was like, the best thing I can do with my mom is to laugh with her. The best thing I can do is show up, and like have dinner with her. The best thing I can do is just to completely accept her for who she is. And from that point on, 
I had some of the deepest conversations where suddenly this wisdom would come out because I finally have ears to hear it. You know, I'm not trying to like just regurgitate some thing that I read on the internet. It's like now having a deep heart to heart and hearing this wisdom from my mom that I never really knew she had. And I realized I was like, oh my God, she is so much more advanced and beyond than I am regardless of all the stuff that I know about yoga and everything that I've done is that, and, and I really think that just comes naturally innately, like just from giving birth and a mother being a mother and taking care of a child. And, and I think that's like in all the conversations that I've had with tons and tons of people, the hardest one were the people who had some kind of like, resentment or some kind of hatred towards their mother and the the biggest thing is like regardless of what they've done there's no point on trying to change that person all that's necessary is just fully love them for who they are for all the shitty food that they eat for the cigarettes that they smoke for the whiskey that they drink it doesn't fucking matter it doesn't matter love them fully show up if it's once a week who knows however however it takes right like if it's once a month or a phone call or a facetime nothing about having to educate them just show up and ask like hey how's your day going or whatever and you'll really see how that lights them up and that will just reignite this connection within you And like I said, I I know that can be hard because um, there could be quite a few people who are listening to this. That's like, I haven't talked to my mom in 10 years, right? And maybe this is the synchronicity. Maybe this is the call to do it. Maybe you're one of those people listening that are like, well, you know, it's been two years since I talked to my mom. And, you know, my philosophy now with anything is there's no harm in just actually doing it. Say if it's asking a girl out, if it's applying for a certain job, if it's anything where your mind wants to tell you otherwise, just fucking do it and see what happens, right? You haven't talked to your mom in five years, just call and see what happens. You know, like what is the worst that's going to happen? They're either not going to answer or you're not going to get the job or you're going to get rejected. But I mean, like, you're still going to be the same. You're still going to be a person. You're still going to be there. So what if like maybe some of your feelings were hurt a bit? doesn't fucking matter. Just do the thing that maybe you're a little bit afraid of. But I'm telling you out of my own experience, once I made that shift, the relationship with my mom just fucking flourished amazingly to the point where I convinced her because she didn't even want to go to Serbia. Like it was, it was so odd. Like every year my parents talk about, Oh yeah, we're going to go. We're going to go. And until I finally had the conversation, I sat down with them and I was like, we're going. She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't even want to do it. And I was able to convince her and just because of the love and the trust that she had with me and to then get to that point of that next level of unlocking even like deeper love and connection 
to then witness her flourish and happiness to be with her family. And that's really what it comes down to for me now. Like I used to be obsessed with social media and like gaining a huge following and like being influential to all these people. And after the pandemic, I was like, no, I think what I just need to focus on that's really the most important are just my family and the few friends that I have around me. Like those are the most meaningful connections and meaningful people around me. So that's all I'm going to focus on. I'm going to really focus on spending time with my parents and my brother and my sisters and my niece and my two roommates are childhood friends that I've known all my life. And so really, if there's a remedy to the divisions that are going on, it's just simplify, get right to the few people that you have in your life, focus on that and just be a caring and loving person. Even if at first it, it, maybe you get, you know, like some slack for it or whatever, but that to me is like the epitome of spiritual development. It's when you can come right down to the simplest of the people. It's the hardest for me to love. I'm going to start there. I'm going to love those people. Wow. If it wasn't totally cheesy, I would hit the applause sound effect, dude. What a, (laughs) what a wonderful, I mean, I hate to call that a rant, but what a wonderful oration. I really appreciate that here on this show. I know people are going to be tuning into this in the future and whatnot, but it was just Mother's Day here in the now, and what a what an appropriate way to to end the Mother's Day weekend here on this Monday after Mother's Day. People may not be listening to this on the day after Mother's Day, but hey, if it's a week later, if it's two weeks later, call your mom up, tell her you love her, and uh, wow. Thank you, Yogi. I really appreciate that. Now, let me ask you this. Can we take a break and then for just a moment and then we'll come back where they can find your book? Of course, the link is going to be in the description, but I imagine you have a website where it's available. Or can they get it in local bookstores yet? Is it something that's going to be available soon on Amazon? What's the sitch? Yes. Yeah, so you can, you can get it on Amazon and off my website. So Amazon will be kind of the easier route because it'll just be shipped immediately. But if you want to support Yogi directly. Exactly. So (laughs) you can buy it off my website and there's three different versions or ebook. There's a soft cover and a hard cover. Um, And yeah. And then the only difference between the two is that going through Amazon, you're going to get it fairly quickly through me. I've got to place an order for the books. I don't really, I don't have updated copies. And so getting it from me will also be dependent on how many people purchase through my website. So, you know, anytime I go on a podcast, I just say, you know, the best way to support me is to just purchase a book. And that's in, in any iteration, right? If it's, if it's ebook or if it's a physical copy, the benefit of a physical copy, especially if you buy it through my website, I do sign it and I do make a personalized note. So if you'd like a personalized note, at least then you have something tangible and physical from me that has something personalized to you. So it's more sentimental in that regard. Right on. And get one, 
Get a copy for someone you love. Send them the ebook. Pick up a physical copy. And if you do, maybe there's a way they can write you a message. Tell them you heard Yogi on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, and Yogi Zorananda returned for a fourth episode. Big, big episode. So much, in fact, that I left some of it for the Patreon only audience. That's right. I think we're going to start moving into a new format as we move on uh, past episode 300. And maybe this will be a little test run. This will be a little experiment. So if you want to hear the entire conversation, sign up today. Sign up now on the Patreon. Of course, Yogi has his own book. You can find that at Zorananda.com. The link is in the description. His music is also available there. You can find that on Spotify. And uh, yeah, I just finished the conversation as I'm recording this outro. I think I'm going to try to do this more often it's more organic there's more things to say definitely a fantastic conversation and i like having guests on the show multiple times we establish a rapport and uh dive deeper and deeper you know we learned a lot about the yogi and his family today we learned his name is actually zoran glamochila which he probably told me that initially, but that was a long time ago, way back in 2021, the early days of the podcast. Uh, I think that was winter 2021 when we recorded our first show together. And uh, that episode is also available only on the Patreon due to a file error that caused me to have to delete it from the main feed. So anyways... Uh, yeah, but he's been on the show other times as well, obviously, 83, episode 83, and episode 191, so uh, you can listen to that, and you should also listen to The Yoga Connection, which is a podcast hosted by Yogi Zorananda. We talked a bit about that at the beginning of the show. You learn about the chakras, learn about the koshas, and a bunch of other stuff. He's even interviewed his teacher... Uh, on his podcast so uh, get in touch with yoga in your own way through Zorananda Uh, a little bit of a Eurocentric episode today I like these sort of geographically focused episodes hence the show Esoteric America and uh, you know things change podcasts grow and expand and evolve and uh, due to recent events in one of our co-hosts lives um we may be switching up the format for esoteric america yet again so exciting news on the way about that stay tuned Uh, of course if you want to catch the video episodes of esoteric america they are still available on youtube and rockfin uh, for free on rockfin a bunch of them are available for free on rockfin i put them out early on Rockfin, along with all of the episodes of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. It's just an uh, easier process for me to edit the videos and upload them. Uh, there's less, you know, 
production that goes into those episodes different production visual production i guess you could say uh there's different elements to those episodes so it's a, it's a totally different experience and for one price you get over 400 different shows on rockfit including the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast so if you want to see all of the interesting stuff our guests have to present or if you just want to see our lovely smiling faces support us on rockfin check us out on youtube helps the show grow it helps us get better guests you want us to have guests like john levy who yogi zorananda mentioned today well you know he'll do uh, a show like well tim pool he'll do a show with eddie bravo um but you know this show we still have some ways to go before we can get big guests uh like that so yeah if you want to help the show grow give us a five-star rating or review tell your friends share our show on social media i did a uh sort of hidden password for some people in one of the past episodes and all of those people received a free sticker uh if you message me the secret passcode and you didn't get a sticker just let me know maybe there's a mailing error maybe uh i forgot i'm pretty sure i got it got everybody but who knows so let me know but if you want merch I recently put some new mug designs on the, uh, <laughs> on the merch store. But now that I think about it, who needs a mug in May? Uh, you need a mug in October. We should be selling uh, like those reusable water bottles with the My Family Thinks Some Crazy logo on it. How's that? I'm going to put those on there. But we do have some glass, some glasses that are available on the merch store. Speaking of drinks, drinkware. Uh, we got stickers, we got shirts, all that stuff that helps support the show. I also have a book list, a reading list that's available on the website, a bunch of suggested books that you can check out. And if you purchase them through the, uh, website that is linked on my website, my website, my family thinks uh, you can, I think it's called bookshop.org. You find the mystic Mark library list and yeah, any book that you pick from that list Believe it or not, uh, I get a little fraction of the the purchase. So check that out if you're trying to bulk up the library. If you want to add some new books to the shelf. And uh, yeah, myriad of ways to support the show. You can always just send us a one-time donation in the form of cryptocurrency or Venmo, Cash App, PayPal. All that is listed in the episode description. But of course, I do... Uh, place the Patreon supporters above them all. Uh, they are the bread and butter that keeps this show going. So if you want to see this show continuing at the pace that it's going, support us on Patreon. And if you do now, uh, you'll get in early uh, before we may, you know, raise the price and uh, and change up the model of the show. I don't know. Thinking about some interesting, creative, fun ways to enhance this podcast so stay tuned for that i know i've said that in the past but i will deliver this time um and that's it gotta give a big shout out to the hit kit as always uh my man garrett is in the lab coming up with new hit kit designs i just saw him come up with this really cool dube tube uh, it's a dube tube 
um, dispenser. So if you're a baller, you want a pre-roll, you got all your pre-rolls, maybe you roll your own, you want to load them up in this the dube tubes, you can throw them into this dube tube dispenser, pull the lever, and then pop a clink. It's right there. Pops up, ready to go. Pretty neat. Definitely something that, you know, a head shop, you'd likely see maybe on the counter of a head shop or maybe you'd see it on the counter of a dispensary. But who knows? Maybe you're a baller like me. You're smoking, you know, multiple blunts a day and you just need to keep them all rolled up, you know, roll them all at once and keep them somewhere cool. You can even get your own design right there on the front. Uh, but he's in the lab coming up with designs. I just recommended that he do something uh, windproof because one big issue that I have sometimes when I'm smoking weed is it's too breezy and the lighters with the nozzle neck uh, they just sometimes don't work when it's breezy I mean I don't particularly like to smoke when it's very windy because that's just a waste uh, the smoke's just getting you know pulled pulled everywhere you're sharing your weed with mother nature at that point which is fine but you know she takes and takes she takes and tokes so yeah i like smoking outside we're gonna be hiking we're gonna be going on adventures this summer like last summer and the one before and hopefully more like the one before but last summer we went to pennsylvania so yeah let's see if we could top that and if you'd like to see us do that support the show support our sponsors the hit kit go to the hit kit on Instagram or go to hitkit.us and of course support our guests they help this show make uh, make the airwaves and uh, they help this show be what it is I mean even if you don't agree with the guests I think we can walk away with something interesting or important this episode may not be uh, as divisive but uh, yeah you know I say keep an open mind and tread lightly folks so with that thank you so much for listening and peace out extra terrestrial trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals but i confess too much off of the tongue all my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young i be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from in like a hundred years we went saw a bomb before guns check the facts check the fed check the stars stanley mines was murked for a water fuel cell car they each they own you can stick with your old ways but eat the rich and drink the motherfucking kool-aid and i can see the red on your lip stain white skin blue collar pure american made fuck it Keep your blood so heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep 
sleeping. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, riding, ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so 